Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Hey everyone, this is Max and Amit with a short disclaimer that's going to run right before the normal, your normal programming will run on this episode. Morning, Amit. Morning. This is cool. We get to do this. Yeah, we've never done this before. We always talk about doing something like this, but we never are organized enough to do it. Okay, so this is just a short bit that's going to explain something on this next episode. This is a BIPA episode, an update on different Supreme Court decisions, appellate decisions from the state and federal courts that have come up and down recently on BIPA. After we recorded that episode, of course, the Cothrone decision, which is the big one everybody was waiting on, um, dropped before we were able to get our act together and have that episode come out. So as you listen to this, just know that the Cothrone decision that we finish with or close to finish with that we went into some detail about has now come out in favor of the worker side that the Cothrone decision has come out that decision BIPA violations accrue with each time the clock is used to a point, not that there are lottery ticket verdicts, but that the dam, it's not just a one-time violation. Jim Zoris came on to speak to Amit and I again because it's his case and did a nice deep dive on that issue that is going to run when our next episode drops. Anything to add, sir? No, not really. I think it's a really interesting conversation with Jim. It's a really interesting case. We decided to run it this way because we wanted to give some like context and background to BIPA and how we got here. So, but it's a great episode. Yeah. Jim, as always, has a voice perfect for radio. And if he ever wants a second career doing that, he should. In any way, everybody should check out both episodes and go back to listen to Jim's other episodes to talk about BIPA a lot. But that's all. Thanks to everybody at home for listening as usual. And then here comes the episode. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Amit Bindra. Morning, Amit. Welcome. Morning. Yeah. Happy Sunday morning. Happy Sunday morning. We haven't done a Sunday morning podcast in a bit. I don't know that we've ever done one this early. No, I'm, I'm for you. Maybe it's harder, easier because you have kids. So you get up early. I'm just an early person now. I mean, I, I was at one point, my daughter was certainly at one. One of my daughters was certainly up. Um, so before we dive in today and we are going to do a BIPA show today, we've done a couple of these before with folks like David Fish and Jim Zuris over the last couple of years. But there have been some decisions by the state and federal appellate courts recently that we thought hey, we should probably check in because some of these are kind of a big deal. But before we do, we had a couple of show notes. We've never done that before either. And uh, we actually had some updates on some things coming down the pike and success of the shows. Amit, would you like to start? Sure, sure. We have so Nila National is going to be coming up for is in Chicago this summer. There's going to be more updates coming down the pipeline, but definitely look out to see if you can attend Nila National. There's going to be, I think, a lot of great events as long as great programming when the convention is here. I don't remember the exact dates. I want to say late June, early July. That sounds about right. We're going to get into some trouble for forgetting exactly when that is, but we will be giving an update. I think as the host city, we're going to have some events that Nila, Illinois, is going to be trying to put on in tandem with National or for National and I, to, yeah. to welcome folks. Yep, I believe it is June 27th through July 1st. There you go, just, right. in, just yep. in time for the potential of the holiday weekend. Yep. And then this one is fun. I 
I don't know why this is the case. We've got a good listenership locally, mostly attorneys, our NILA folks, but other employment lawyers and attorneys generally who seem to be our our core base. A few friends who like to listen to us when we do sports episodes specifically. And apparently in Malaysia, we are very popular. And Germany, but Malaysia in particular. And so for those folks in Malaysia and Germany, Chicago in the summertime is fantastic. And so if you want to attend NILA National, I would highly recommend that. I don't think there's a better city in, a, in the world than Chicago, late June, early July. And and just as a point of reference, we just happen to have a large German audience um, relative to the rest of our listenership, just based on the numbers we see. But specifically as regards Malaysia, we are apparently the number nine podcast for personal journals on Mal- iTunes Malaysia. I, I'm not sure what personal journal podcasts are, but thank you to all our Malaysian listeners for for earning us that designation. In particular, I want to also thank Lorena Blonsky, as apparently her episode in particular was most popular in Malaysia. That's awesome. Yeah. So thank you to all of our listeners, especially those in Malaysia and Germany, or really to everyone who's been listening to us for the past almost three years now. All right, Amit, let's dive into it. BIPA. Yeah, BIPA. So what is BIPA? All right. So just as a refresher for folks, because we realize not everybody practices on this topic, BIPA, or the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, is one of the strongest state laws protecting individuals' biometric data in the country, and really the only one that operates with a private cause of action the way BIPA does. Although I believe Texas um, allows some sort of an administrative relief through a government agency. BIPA achieves its goals by making it unlawful for businesses or just entities in general to, among other things, collect, capture, purchase, receive through trade, or otherwise obtain a customer's biometric identifiers or biometric information unless it first informs the subject in writing that a biometric identifier or biometric information is being collected or stored, that the person is informed in writing of the purpose and length of term for which the data or identifiers are being collected, stored, or used, and receive a written release executed by that person granting permission on all of this. It also establishes standards for how companies, including employers, must handle that data. So you need to have storage, collection, I believe retention and destruction schedules or policies. You cannot disclose that person's data or identifiers without first obtaining consent. So think about a biometric time clock that maybe uses fingerprints, palm prints, retinal scans, facial recognition software, or thumbprint scans to collect data. That is permitted, but you got to have the written release in place. And if, it, if, for example, it's one of those devices that disseminates that information to a third party like Paycor, ADP, Paycom, I'm listing some of the vendors who have been sued for BIPA checks, you know, that company might be tracking the time. You need to tell somebody you are giving their data to a third party. And as to that last point, it also prohibits the selling, leasing, trading, or otherwise profiting from a person's identifiers or information and requires that private entities develop and comply with a written policy made public, establishing those things I just described, retention schedules, and guidelines for permanent destruction. Um, And last, but definitely not least, for violations, willful or reckless violations can be met with up to 5,000 or the greater of 5,000 or liquidated damage or actual damages for violations or in the alternative, statutory damages of 1,000 per negligent violation. That was a mouthful. That was great. So I'm going to really enjoy this episode because I get to put you on the spot a lot since this is more your bag than mine. So a couple questions. One, just to back up even further, and I know Jim covered some of this and David did too, but one, what was the initial purpose behind that, behind BIPA? My understanding is it passed unanimously, right? In the late 2000s? 
Yeah, so this is one of those things where some some are having some buyer's remorse, but I think the law is doing what it's intended to do. So think back to 07, 08, 09, before BIPA was a thing, there were those Equifax data breaches, and there were a lot more in the early... I guess we would call that like the late late aughts. We started to, as everything got more online, we started to have some of these data breaches where customer and employee information from various services was starting to be the target of hackers or just companies were not necessarily doing what they needed to do to protect data. So in the wake of the Equifax breach, the Illinois legislature, as Amit pointed out, unanimously passed BIPA to create standards for data retention, collection, disclosure, and sale, and informed consent about all of that as well. And then the law sat there for a while, and I don't think anybody used it. And at some point, about five, six, maybe seven years ago, but probably not that many, some attorneys realized that there was this private cause of action and that companies that were not necessarily following these rules this law was just not being applied. So so the lawsuit started. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, we're going to get to one of those, but I wanted to kind of pause you there for a second. What are legitimate reasons a business would want to actually collect biometrics? So, I mean, I think we, especially those of us in the wage and hour context, right, can conceive of these. Time theft is something employers often get really worked up over. Entities like Disney World or Six Flags, as we're going to get to in a little detail, like to sort of retain integrity over who's using that. I mean, if you think back to how these companies used to operate, you used to scan a ticket and maybe when you leave, you get a stamp or something like that. Or they had some mechanism of enforcing you're not passing tickets about. But as those companies have gotten more high tech and enforcing memberships and how people do it, they've started scanning people's fingerprints to let you in and out of the park and make sure that you're not sharing the Netflix problem, right? Sharing passwords with people to get in and out. Yeah. So there are, there are some logical reasons as to why a company would want to do it without doing something nefarious. So then how do they comply? Is it hard? It's it's really not. It it, it really is just a case. A lot of the timekeeping vendors, like I have one management client. I I know that's sacrilege on this podcast, (laughs) but I do have one and they have a time clock provided by one of the bigger, bigger vendors. And that vendor provides paperwork and software that allows them to comply, which is really just get written consent from your employees and let them know, hey, you're using your fingerprints, your palm prints, your thumbprints to, to clock in, clock out. It's for our benefits so that we can prevent time theft. It's for your benefits so nobody can say that you did or didn't punch in when you when you actually did and that you were on time. That means we're going to have your biometric identifiers. Here's what we're doing with it. Here's how it's being stored. And here's how long we'll have it and how it will be destroyed when it is destroyed. If you do that, you know, hey, we're ADP is collecting the data. We're going to be disclosing it to them so that they can keep track of the hours just so you know, please sign here. It really is not that difficult to comply with this law. Okay. So a lot of it's just people didn't know it existed. A lot of it's people didn't know it existed or didn't really care about it, or it was not something that was on their radar. They were perfectly happy to take the data and nobody's really worried about the consequences of it. And then as in some cases you and I are working on together on it, the people were just not terribly concerned about the consequences or don't, don't care. And that's why we have jobs. So- that leads me to my next question, which is, what are then the damages? It, it seems like there's two buckets. There's either going to be damages for a negligent violation or for a willful one. And are those capped then at a specific level? That's a good question. So one of the arguments on the defense bar side of this is that, well, no one has ever actually suffered a harm from BIPA, that we have no documented cases of, oh, somebody's somebody's retinal scans or facial recognition or fingerprints were used to open a bank account or do X. The argument is really 
there are two ways to answer that. One is, well, what is the actual harm or what are the actual damages? The other is what you're asking specifically, what are the economic caps on it? I think to the first part, and I think Jim had talked about this on his show, it's really about data integrity and that if somebody's going to, you know, as things get more advanced and as facial recognition and palm prints and, and all of these biometric identifiers become the way of the world and how people go about collecting information or transactions are done, that we need to be more and more careful about how this data is collected, disclosed, protected, and handled. And that if companies cannot follow basic low-level requirements for management of that data, then there need to be protections put in place. The other is that, you know, we've seen cases where vendors in particular are using that data and they're going and doing a lot with it. It's not like they're just sitting on it, but they're using it to create analyses. They're using it to Minority reports such a strong um, sci-fi hypothetical here, but they're doing a lot with that information. And they're basically doing it without your consent to take your stuff and use it to create analytics and sort of track how things happen. As far as the money itself, the stat, that is one of the things that is being litigated and we'll get to it, the co-throne appeal that's coming up. We don't yet know how courts are going to rule about whether it's every time somebody clocks in or out that a violation occurs. But the way the statute is written... Um, 1,000 for negligent violations, basically 5,000 for reckless or willful. There is one verdict to date from a jury that has sort of analyzed that, and that was the BNSF rail case where there was the reckless willful violation handed down, which I think was in excess of $260 million given the class size. So it was 5,000 per violation in that case. Are there other penalties within the law, like attorney's fees, interest? Obviously, there's actual damages insofar as those can be proved. Right. I mean, and also there is fee shifting, although practically speaking in the BIPA classes I've worked on, it tends to be you are settling for a number per head inclusive of fees and costs, which are really just settlement administration. Although if you get far enough into litigation, you're paying for experts. In that big jury verdict case, was there also a fee award? You know what? I don't recall off the top of my head. Okay. I think Sorry to put you on the spot. No, you're all right, man. Yeah. I don't know if they've gotten curious. Well, I think, you know, like most of these attorney's fees cases, right? You get the verdict and then you're having another mini trial. Yeah, yeah. Case. Then you're filing the petition. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we could get Catherine and Brian on to uh, talk about the Vega case to talk about all the fee <laughs> trials they've had. One last question, then we can get to some of these court decisions. And Jim touched upon this too. But, you know, every time I use my iPhone and there is a facial recognition scan or a thumbprint scan or whatnot, is that a BIPA violation? It is not. And actually, one of the decisions I'm going to touch on a little bit later, it was Barnett, Burr and Henderson versus Apple. The Illinois Appellate Court just affirmed, well, not just, but a couple months ago, affirmed that it was not because as much as it's using that information to open the phone, as they pointed out on that appeal, it did not, the data was stored on the device. Apple did not collect or store the information elsewhere. The features were optional, meaning it was not mandatory. You had an option to opt out of it. User was the sole entity in deciding whether or not you collected those, used those features, enabled them or employed them. And the user had the power to delete the device data from that device. So the, the appellate court said, no, it is not. Okay, interesting. All right, so let's go to 2017. The I'm going to call it the Six Flags decision. That's to me kind of the first big time BIPA was in the news in my world. I'm sure obviously it was in other people's worlds before that. But tell us a little bit about that decision. Yeah, same for me too. I don't think I had heard of it until that that decision came down. And I honestly, as I read it on the ISBA website back then, I'm probably sure I wasn't even really sure what I was looking at. But essentially, that was the first decision that really opened things up here for BIPA. In that one, I think it was the plaintiff's mother, Stacey Rosenbach, sues Six Flags after the corporation collected her son's fingerprints, you know, ostensibly without consent to 
allow him to use the season pass he'd purchased to Great America. Somebody ultimately ends up filing suit as this was sort of what BIPA was designed to address. The appellate court held that plaintiff and her son could not sue because they had only committed, quote, technical violations of the statute and that there was no, quote unquote, actual injury. So then the main issue um, on appeal was whether there needed to be a concrete harm or damages, like actual damages shown, or whether the act of the privacy violation, meaning it was the act of doing the BIPA violation of not following instructions and protecting data in the way the statute required, that was adequate for establishing a violation. And in January of 2019, the Illinois Supreme Court held that it was, and that there was a technical reason why her personal violation didn't work. I think she lacked standing, but her son did have it, and it wasn't a requirement that he show actual damages that the mere act of the data breach, not data breach, but the data collection on its own without following steps was adequate. So the short version is just so long as a company takes someone's biometric data, doesn't provide the proper notices, regardless of anything else, that in of itself is a violation of the statute. Correct. Correct. Okay. So, you know, as the defense bar would say, and as you see in a lot of the motions to dismiss in these cases, the floodgates have been opened to the cottage industry of BIPA litigation, as they would argue from that decision. So what happened since that decision? So there have been various other challenges because what that does do is sort of create a strict liability violation, though there are some defenses when sometimes it will not apply. But there have been various appellate arguments that are lines of reasoning that have gone up on appeal at various points. Some have had some success because there are some coverouts in the statute for, for example, a financial institutions under the Gramm-Leach Act. So if um, certain biometric identifiers are, re are required by law to complete financial transactions, that is not a violation. Another one is HIPAA. So think about like a Pixis machine or like a machine that is used to basically control narcotic dispense, narcotics being dispensed in a medical setting. If those devices require biometrics or patient information to function, HIPAA tends to exempt BIPA. However, on that note, one of the appellate decisions that came down, I believe last year, it was the Mosby versus Ingalls Memorial Hospital decision. It doesn't apply to all employees or all uses of biometrics in a medical setting. So for example, the custodian or some other hourly employee who's clocking in and clocking out in a facility, just because it happens to be a healthcare facility does not exempt them, the employer from BIPA violations in the timekeeping setting. Is the thought process there that HIPAA already provides protections for the individual? So insofar as HIPAA would apply, so it wouldn't apply to, let's say the custodian, but it could apply to other folks. There's already broad protections on the sale of those biometrics. Yeah. And also think about like what the biometrics are being collected for there and who is intended to be protected by HIPAA. HIPAA is aimed at protecting employee, uh, not employee, but patient. It is the patient protection statute there, right? Not employee data protection. So, and I have gotten that argument too in, in a couple of BIPA cases that I've worked on where we've had healthcare employees who were like janitorial or custodial staff whose biometric data was being collected for no medical purpose other than just they happen to work in a facility. Right. And so in that circumstance, HIPAA is not probably applying anyways. And so the only reason I can see that HIPAA would be, an ex would be exempt from BIPA issues is because HIPAA provides protections to the patient or to someone. Correct. Correct. There are mechanisms the federal government has for investigating and leveling fines for HIPAA noncompliance by employers or or by, you know, providers. So I think starting 
Well, th- there are several decisions since the Six Flags case. Tell us a little bit about the McDonald Symphony Bronzeville Park LLC case. So that was the big one that everything was really stayed for until the middle of last year. And that one, the argument, I mean, the defense bar really put a lot of eggs in that basket. Most BIPA cases were stayed for a while on that grounds was whether the Illinois Workers' Compensation Act preempts BIPA as a cause of action for these violations. So the argument essentially was that it's a work-related injury. On the defense side, the argument was, oh, this is a work-related injury. And that as a result, you know, negligent work-related injuries are not compensable for any by any other vehicle than workers' compensation. We know we can't sue for personal injury because one of our clients trips and falls or is injured on the job in a work-related incident. That's what comp is for. Comp is the exclusive remedy. So the argument held by extension, this is a comp issue. The McDonald, the Illinois Supreme Court and the McDonald decision held no, it is not. They are not preempted by the workers' compact. BIPA injuries are not the type of injuries covered by workers' comp. It defines a BIPA's in, a BIPA industry as consisting of the loss of ability to maintain privacy rights and a lost opportunity to say no by withholding consent. And societal injuries as different than physical and psychological industries, which are injuries, excuse me, which are protected by the compact. And this does come up from time to time of whether or not the Comp Act preempts other claims an employee may have. So employees are going to have typical claims under Title VII or the Human Rights Act or other state and local ordinances for discrimination. I'll say that broadly. And then there's retaliation claims. But a lot of torts can be preempted by the compact. So I think that was kind of the crux of this argument, right? Yeah. And I even remember early in my career, I was asked to look into a negligent hiring theory of liability or negligent retention or training or something in a sex abuse harassment of a minor employee case. And couldn't figure out as a baby lawyer why it was taking me hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to find non-point case law. It's because it didn't exist anymore because the compact sort of jumped out in front and preempted all that in Illinois. Yeah, yeah. Um, and BIPA does apply, obviously, because we've talked about the Six Flags case, to individuals who aren't employee. They can apply to consumers, right? Correct. I mean, if anybody ever got that Facebook check from that that BIPA class a while ago, that was a good example. I know TikTok has been sued for it as well. You know, there's a difference between the Apple device that's not necessarily using your collecting the data or disclosing it improperly and other apps that may be doing it. And some of those apps have been this, the, the target of BIPA lawsuits as a result. So, okay, we've talked about two of the big Supreme Court cases, Six Flags and McDonald. Have there been other prominent cases in the BIPA world? Quite a few. We should, in retrospect, had we been more organized, perhaps we would have gotten Jim back, as Jim Zuris seems to be living in Springfield at this point, given the amount of times he has had to go down there on this one. So the most recent decision to come out, though there are some pending decisions we're gonna we're gonna reference, is Tim's Tim versus Black Horse Carriers, and this addressed the statute of limitations on BIPA claims. So like many of our other wonderful statutes, the Illinois Legislature in drafting it forgot to add or didn't add a statute of limitations on this one. Expressly in the law. So we have statutes on the books in Illinois, which I, of course, as it's 850, well, we're after nine. No, we're after nine. Coffee's hit. For you. That covers when you don't have a statute. But so BIPA was silent. The five year statute of limitations that is applied by the savings clause in this other statute was initially applied to these laws. Somebody challenged. The argument was that. These were at least some of these violations. So C and D violations under BIPA 
were disclosure violations. So think like some of the privacy torts that we have or reputational torts that we have that rely on disclosure of information to create a violation. So think like false light invasion of privacy, defamation. You typically have one-year statutes limitations on those claims. So the argument was that under CD&E, or, or CND rather, um, there were one-year statutes limitations or that one year should apply across the board. The reason we were at the state Supreme Court, not we, but somebody was, was that what the appellate court did was held that there were two different violations or two different statutes limitations applicable in these cases, A and B violations. So for the collection and retention and the failure to disseminate privacy policies, violations, and then um prong E, which is data security requirements. There were five-year statutes limitations, but that conversely, the appellate court held that one-year violations, uh, one-year statutes limitations applied to the CND violations. Illinois Supreme Court held, no, we don't need competing statutes limitations on the same law. It is confusing and counterproductive. And that BIPA was, was written in such a way as to have the broadest recovery possible and to do the most possible to protect data. And so that not only was it incorrect to apply two different statutes limitations, but that there should be a five-year statute across the board. Yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around having two different statute of limitations for the same statute. I think so the, the court appellate... found itself in the same conundrum. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like it's got to be one or five, and ideally it would be five. So Section 15A, that is in the context of data destruction requirements. That's how a company would comply with what are the requirements and how they maintain the information. Is that right? I'm sorry, ask that again. Section 15A. Yes. Is that in the context of how a company would comply with their obligations to maintain the biometric data? Right. So A is about the private having the privacy policy in place about what you're doing with it, having it publicly available, having the data destruction requirements laid out. B is about notice and consent in the collection of it. And then E is about how you are maintaining and destroying that data long term. Okay. And then C is the limitation on not selling or profiting from the biometric data. And then section 15D is what are the disclosure requirements? Correct. So think back to that ADP Paycor paychecks, like, hey, you scan the print. We are sending this information to said timekeeping vendor to track and maintain. Okay. So the Supreme Court has taken this up at least three times now. They've taken it up in the Six Flags case, in the context of the Workers' Comp Act, and then the statute of limitations. Is it an independent, does the statute of limitations run every time someone's biometric data is collected? Is that each a separate violation or is it all running from the first time this all happens? That's a great question, Amit, which the court has also taken up in the Cothrone versus White Castle Systems claim <laughs> accrual issue. So this one has not come down yet. And this is the other one that's really, I mean, the three big ones that have sort of been hanging out there are McDonald on the compact preemption issue, Tim's on how long the statute's gonna be, but Cothrone and the accrual one is really, I think, the other one. And the issue, in short, is when does the violation occur? And by extension, when does the statute begin to run? It is it the first time somebody scans their data into the device, like the very first time you put your hand or thumb or other finger or eye or face in front of or on the device, and that data is collected? Is it every single time you do it? Is it like the FLSA where it's a continuing violation? You do it once 
you know, you have a violation and it's ongoing and, and it keeps being violated each time? Or is it the first time? Or is it one violation that renews each time? We don't yet know. Those seem to be the possible outcomes. Um, the defense bar and the parade of horribles that we hear is this will bankrupt ever. I mean, I, I tend to agree, especially for non-insurance non companies, it probably will bankrupt some companies if every single time you clock in, it's a new it's violation. A, yeah, because that would mean it's a new violation of $1,000 or $5,000 per person per clock in. Correct, which if you clock, if you use the device four times to clock in and out for meal breaks and yep. um, Each day. whatever per day, you know, I mean, it, it probably gets a little unwieldy. Yeah, okay. So those are the, are there any other appellate or Supreme Court cases or federal appellate court cases still pending? So there have been, there's one other area where there's been a fair amount of BIPA litigation is in the union context and the organized labor context. Um, and yet again, the Walton versus Roosevelt University case at the state level presents the question of whether Section 301 of the LMRA, the Labor Management Relations Act, a federal law preempts a privacy act claim asserted by an employee under BIPA and whether that is covered by the CDA. To this point, federal courts have pretty consistently, from what I understand, applied that, held that these claims are preempted and that this is something that should have been contemplated by the CBA. I personally do not agree with that because I don't think most of these CBAs were negotiated at least up front when BIPA was a thing and that this is the kind of thing that a union grievance is really going to contemplate or that that grievance sort of process is going to address. Um, but that is also hanging out there and, and unsettled in this moment, though I think the general thought is it may go the wrong way there. Okay. And that's already now in front of the Illinois Supreme Court as well? Correct. That one just got argued too by once again by Mr. Zuris. And I believe another one of our bar members, Alejandro Caffarelli's firm, has also been arguing one of these at the federal appellate court level, though I could be off on that. Yeah, in the Seventh Circuit. Okay. Yeah. And the I only mean, other... The, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's just interesting how many BIPA cases have gone to the Supreme Court in the last four years. I'm trying to remember another circumstance like that, but they've granted a lot of petitions for leave to appeal, which... My gut reaction is that's very rare. I think it's uncharted territory. I think it's a really high-minded statute that I think is, for the most part, being used how it was intended, which is to make sure that people follow these rules. I think on the other side of the aisle, they would argue that it is a strict liability statute that they really haven't been given a lot of defenses to, and that they're sort of throwing, you know, they've been in the spot of having to throw things at the wall to see what sticks. I get it, but, you know... That's sort of the point, which is just get the paperwork signed. Just make sure you're, if you're going to do this stuff, you're doing it carefully. Well, that, yeah, leads me to my next question. Then the, the Six Flags case came out January of 2019. So at that point, I think pretty much everyone was on notice of BIPA. In theory, the statute of limitations is capped at five years. So do you anticipate, and there's been a lot of BIPA litigation over the last four years. Do you anticipate that trend continuing over the next, let's say, four or five, or are now companies for the most part complying and doing what seems to be not too difficult amount of work to ensure that they're consistent with the statute. I mean, you would think in a vacuum that people would have figured this out by now, that this really shouldn't be that hard, that like you do this. And yet I think we can all speak to this as certain new industries emerge. People contemplate. What, so take the weed industry, for example, medical marijuana or like recreational. I think that industry did a really good job 
of figuring out how not to get in trouble for selling that product and how to follow the the compliance-related regulations that that industry was putting forward. What I don't think that that particular industry, without naming certain entities, thought about was labor management policies. And so as a result, you see nationwide a lot of union collective um collective bargaining issues, a lot of organized labor disputes, non-organized labor disputes. Our, our firm has a tip-tap lawsuit against a couple of those. Lawsuits have been filed against some of these entities. I'm mentioning that because I think certain industries contemplate the industry side of what they're doing, but don't always think about the labor and employment side of it. And that as a result, you will always have entities that are tripping over themselves as they enter the labor market, not having thought through labor management policies. So the answer is it shouldn't continue like this because there are only so many companies left who have violated, who have not gotten themselves right on this. But I will never I will never cease to be amazed about the footfalls that certain industries will commit in the interest of cutting corners and what have you. And that leads me to another question, which is who can be sued? So let's say you have a payroll company who provides the device to track the time. Can they be sued? Can it is only the employer? Can you sue both? My theory, my understanding has always been both are fair game, that one made you do this as your employer and the other actually did the collecting of the data. And there is one other decision I will just mention in passing. It was the Ron Kilo decision versus doctor's associates at the federal district court level last April. So we're almost a year out where the software company that was providing the data collection software was sued and the district court held, nope, you guys are fair game as well. And there was another appellate court decision, I think, or district court decision on this in the last week or two, confirming this, that the vendors themselves are very much fair game for this, that if they are not in compliance, they too can be sued for this. Just like in the, you know, in the Rosenbach case, it was not an employment setting. Do you ever, or are you aware of situations in which the employer gets sued and then they sue the vendor for not, I don't know, lack lack of a better phrase here, but not giving them a better heads up on like, hey, we need to have all this stuff in place. It's funny you mentioned that. I actually have one of those cases right now where we sued a nursing home and didn't realize the timekeeping vendor was doing quite a bit of stuff with the data. And I, I want to be careful about this one other than to say there are this has become a circular firing squad and everybody has sued everybody. Our client has not been sued, but the employer and the, the timekeeping vendor have sued each other. And we have also sued both of them all as part of the same lawsuit. So yes, is the long answer to your short question. I also think Fish fish, and Potter and Bolaños have a couple of those or have had a couple of those going as well. So we have an answer in terms of, do you, can it be a technical violation? We know generally what the statute of limitations is. We know whether or not the Workers' Comp Act preempts BIPA. We also have an answer now on the HIPAA issue. And we're going to have an answer too, soon on, is it one violation or multiple violations? And also in terms of union activity, what legal fights do you anticipate moving forward that have not been resolved, if any? Well, one of the arguments you often get on the defense side, if you do get into the discovery on these cases, is that, well, the device didn't actually collect biometrics, that it was just ones and zeros, which is just how computers talk to each other anyway. So, I mean, there are, you know, on the scientific or on the expert side, you're always going to have issues there. I know the argument, you know, as to the question you asked a minute or two ago about, well, can you sue both the vendor and the employer? I know that the double dipping or, you know, res judicata or estoppel argument type arguments are out there. I'm sure there are going to be other issues. I mean, constitutionality has been challenged that it's special legislation because it carves out certain industries. I think that's kind of a silly one, but it is out there. So there have been various constitutional challenges as well you know, in various contract provisions that maybe somebody is the wrong entity or that somebody has disclaimed liability, that sort of thing. But I mean, I think 
as long as the statute is out there and as long as the, the statute doesn't have other than those industry carve outs real clear defenses you're always going to have somebody trying to do something novel to avoid liability under something like this no that's true it just seems they're running out of ways to attack it that's why i keep going back to kind of my point from a couple minutes ago about the supreme court i think they've done a really good job of answering all these questions so we just kind of know what the lay of the land is with the statute when I think about it, like go back to like our first couple episodes, when we talk about like Cobra violations and you get the argument of, well, this is just a technical violation. Yeah, but it's a technical violation that Congress wanted you not to make. You know, Congress yep. said we want people to have this information. We don't care if they can pay for it or not. You have to tell them what their rights are. You know, you could say, well, you know, nobody sold the data yet. Well, we, you know what? We don't know what the consequences are going to be, but data breaches keep happening fast and furious. We don't always know where it's going. It gets easier and easier to take people's information, or, or maybe it doesn't, but like you need to be taking these steps to protect people. And I feel like over the last 14, 15 years since the iPhone came out, privacy has, there's been data breaches, there's been a lot of issues with privacy, and this seems to be the one area where courts and legislatures are staying ahead of it, which is nice to see in the privacy realm. Agreed. I mean, I think you get these notifications of your data may be at risk or you get these class action settlement letters and it's like, great, my stuff is, you know, I get a gift card to for $20 to this, but like, where is my information? So I just think as we enter this brave new world, the ground is going to continue to shift under us for a while until we land at what, what standards are for data protection. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think a lot of what has happened with this legislation is you made this point earlier, it's putting companies on notice that they have to comply. And so it's creating a huge deterrent effect moving forward. So overall, all consumers and employees, I think, are in a better spot. And I think that was the intended purpose of the goal or of the legislation. I agree. And again, it's not hard to comply. You just right. have to do it. Um, yeah, it's like a short step process. Well, this was fun. I enjoyed, I mean, I learned a lot about Bitba. I know we've talked to David and Zuris about this as well. But this was, I think, a good recap. Anything we miss? Anything else you want to touch upon? I'm sure I was a little inarticulate in describing some of these issues. I'm not quite as Jim. I, I'm still convinced Jim has our voice for radio best guess for that. We should have had yeah. him on for this. He would have said this we'll bring him back yeah, eloquently can, than I would have. But I'm sure he'll have good stories, too, about just all the Supreme Court cases he's argued. So we'll have to bring him back on to talk about this. Amit, you want to shout somebody out this week? So I thought we could do two things. One is we could do a shout out, but also it's Super Bowl Sunday. So who do you got? I don't watch the NFL, but I happen to enjoy watching Pat Mahomes in college. So I'll say Kansas City. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I really want, I don't I don't really know enough about what's happening, but I do, it, it's always cool to see a dominant someone in their industry. And so Mahomes has been awesome I'm rooting for him today. Do you have any plans? Do you have any snack issues or anything you do for your Super Bowls? So my wife likes to do Detroit style pizza for it. She lives oh, in the sh it. deep dish Chicago where my favorite places here are uh, New York style. So we compromise on that one. Her folks are in. So we'll do that. And we'll do that. What about you? So I will say from a pizza standpoint, my order goes Detroit style, New York style, and Chicago style, which maybe it's you're, you're going to get shivved but... on your way out of the podcast <laughs> studio today. Not by me, but by someone on it. I know. Yeah. I'm going to make a chili cheese dip. I'm going to make like a homemade pizza and then go from there. So. You are way handier than I am in that vein. I used to make a turducken, but I think I'm getting to the age at which I can't put on that amount of calories anymore. But why though? It sounds so healthy. <laughs>
All right. My shout out is going to be to the NBA trade deadline. Love basketball. <laughs> <laughs> it was an awesome deadline. The Bucks got Jay Crowder. We've been on a 10 game running streak. So that's my shout out. How about you? Uh, my shout out. Well, I'm going to be a little boring here, but I'm going to shout out again my wife for navigating a C-section and allowing me to work while she's on leave and still navigating that with our two and a half year old who's got a lot of opinions and is very mobile right now and does not always agree with our opinions on things and our and our one month old. So uh, shout out to her and, and to the little girls. Yeah. Congratulations again. Thank you, sir. And thanks to everybody at home for letting me fumble through this one, for listening to Amit and I. If you have not already, please subscribe and share to the podcast and a shout out to our German and Malaysian listeners. And if you can make it, go to Neil National. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinion. We are not your attorney. This podcast is not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.